listening to the Bible Brush Up Podcast. We are currently going through a series called the 12-Week Torah, and we are going through the first five books of the Old Testament, which is referred to as the Torah. And we have reached the book of Numbers and have spent a significant amount of time going through it. And very soon we'll be in our final book, the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, but the book of Numbers, we've already talked in previous episodes about the people and how they were numbered in the beginning, which is where the book gets its name. Uh, but they weren't only numbered there, but as those who are following the reading plan that we have published, uh, as you've gotten through these recent chapters, you see that the people are numbered again. And you may be wondering why in the world were they numbered again. And we talked about the first numbering and how that number represented the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. God had promised Abraham that he would have many descendants and that those descendants would be given a land. And as they're venturing on their way to the promised land through the leadership of Moses and Aaron, they are significant in numbers. And so they, through this numbering, are revealing that God has upheld his promises, his covenantal promises, that the people are indeed growing and multiplying, and they have gone from just a handful of people um, that moved from um, the Canaan region to Egypt uh, in Israel's family, and Jacob and his sons. Uh, they have multiplied into thousands and hundreds of thousands. So just by numbering the men in the first couple of chapters of Numbers, we have a number over 600,000. But in between that numbering and the second numbering, a lot transpires. People continue to die. In fact, an entire generation dies out because of their unwillingness to follow the promises of God, and to enter into the promised land. They're unwilling to go and to face what they call giants in the land, even though it is a land flowing with milk and honey, as God had described, and even though it was supposed to be divinely handed over to them, they, they won't go, and they end up dying out. On top of that, we've already discussed some of the rebellion that ensued in the camp, and people constantly are turning against Moses and the leadership and seeking a better way. Many of them are complaining that they want to go back to Egypt because they think it's better off to be slaves in Egypt than to be wanderers in the wilderness. And a lot of this seems very compact, like it's happening one day after another. Uh, but in reality, this is transpiring over 40 years. And so if you have, you know, 30 cases of rebellion in a 40-year period, it, it maybe doesn't feel as intense as it does to the reader who's just seeing this chapter after chapter, each rebellion. Um, and so that's probably an explanation of why people can be so rebellious after God has already swallowed up a group of re uh, rebels in the dirt and has burned rebels with fire and he's caused snakes to come in and bite rebels and has caused quail to bring a plague on those who are grumbling and complaining uh, because I know that's my feeling as I'm reading through this is how in the world can you continue to complain and grumble against God and, and rebel against the leadership that he's anointed and appointed um, with all of these clear manifestations of judgment on display. But in some cases, it's just because of their hardness of heart. And in some cases, it's because time makes people forget. Um, and so one thing I do think we should take away from this is uh, obviously the seriousness of sin 
and that sin brings death. But another thing is that even though sin brings death, and even though there are consequences for rebellion against God, in the book of Numbers, when we get to the second numbering, the number is almost the same. Um, so you can look at that and interpret that data in different ways. In one way, you can say, wow, God has preserved his people. This is a people that absolutely deserved to die. This is a people that absolutely deserved to be dissolved into nothing. And on several accounts, God basically said that he was going to do that. He was going to just eliminate these people and start all over. And Moses, being the intercessor that he was and pleading on their behalf, he, he pleads with God to preserve them, or at least a remnant of them, so that he can fulfill his promises and so that the on-watching world will not ridicule the people of God and say, look, your God couldn't deliver you. And from that vantage point, the number is, it resembles God's grace and God's mercy um, because it should have been a much lower number um, when you look at all of the catastrophe and rebellion and all the death. Um, but on the other hand, you can look at that number and say, well, it should have been a much higher number if they had had 40 years to reproduce and to um, continue to grow at the same rate that they've been growing over the last several um, generations, they would have been an enormous nation. And if they had done everything right, they would have already been in the promised land and they would have been enjoying the fruit of that holy place. But instead, now they're wandering in the wilderness, conditions are tough, it's uh, probably not as hospitable to reproducing as uh, maybe the promised land would have been, and there are wars that continue to rise up. We see um, battles against the Midianites. There is a threat from the Edomites. There's uh, a threat from um, the Amorites, and several of these other uh, countries and bordering nations begin to take up swords and fight against God's people. And, and so because of this, uh, the, the number's not as big as it could be. And these numbers are there as reminders, I think, for both, to show the grace of God and the mercy of God, to show that God's promises are still being fulfilled even despite the sin of the people, but also to show us that things aren't as good as they could have been had the people have been faithful to God. There's another topic, though, that I think we should go and cover um, before closing for today, and that would be the person of Balaam. Balaam is this very strange figure who is not an Israelite, but yet he's called a prophet of God, and it seems very clear from the text that he does get direct communication from God, which is interesting because this will be the only prophet that we are aware of in Scripture that communes with God in such a way that is not from Israel. Almost every single prophet, uh, every other prophet, that is, comes from Israel and is an Israelite. But this, this character, Balaam, is not, and yet he is getting direct revelation from God, and he is called by the king of the Moabites to curse the people of God. And the interesting thing, as you read this, you think that Balaam is doing the right thing. He, it always seems like he is honoring God. He's telling 
uh, the king and his men that he cannot curse who God has not cursed, and he can only say what God puts in his mouth. And that's the supernatural effect of the prophecy, that when God says it through him, he speaks it, and he has no other option. It's outside of his control. He has no will uh, in the matter, and, and therefore he can't just go and curse somebody. He has to wait on God's direct revelation, which seems like a good thing. And he's not willing to go with the people at first, and it appears that God tells him to go. And then when he's going, it says that God's anger was kindled against him, which causes the reader to stop and say, wait a minute, I thought God told him to go. And I think when you get to something like this, that there appears to be a contradiction or that something's missing out of the story, you sort of have to read between the lines. And I believe in this scenario, we have a situation where where the intentions of Balaam are not necessarily righteous and good. In fact, God said, go with them, but only say what I tell you to say. And maybe because he's in mixed company here, he begins saying things that God did not intend for him to say. Uh, furthermore, he may be going with the intention of cursing these people if God will so allow it. Uh, even when he should know better as a prophet of God that God's people will never fall under um, a curse of God that does not come from their own disobedience and rebellion, and which is what they're trying to bring about from Balaam. They're wanting him to curse them, not because of their iniquity and their sin, but just to curse them just because, which will never happen for God's people. God will not allow a curse to come upon them that has not been a direct violation uh, of the covenant stipulations of the Ten Commandments. So he's just not going to do that. Everything for God's people when they're righteous is a blessing. And so Balaam goes, and he goes on three different mountaintops to, to talk to God, and they burn these sacrifices and um, all of this to seek out an opportunity to curse God's people. But he never does, because God does not allow it. He only speaks a blessing. And there seems to be a rift between um, Moab, uh, the king, Balak, and Balaam, the prophet. And so Balaam goes back to his own people. But in the very next chapter, we have Balaam's people, the Midianites, coming into the camp of Israel and mixing sexually with the people there. The women uh, come into the men, and this is where Phinehas, the... The Levite takes up a spear and runs it through uh, a couple who are violating God's um, holy commands for purity within the camp. And he's exalted as being heroic and atoning for the sins of Israel. It actually says he makes atonement there. And what I take from that is this is likely Balaam's attempt at circumnavigating God's protective hedge and his unwillingness to curse Israel. He knows that he's not going to curse them for no reason, but he will curse them for a reason. And so now all he has to do is to create a reason. And uh, we get through bits and pieces of the Old Testament and the New Testament that Balaam is this character now who symbolizes having one foot in the camp of God and one foot in the world. One foot as a friend of God and one foot as his enemy. He's half godly and half worldly, which 
when the scriptures depict him, they depict him as completely ungodly. To be half in and half out just means you're completely out, uh, which is true then. It's true today as well. You can't be half Christian. You either are or you aren't. Either Jesus is your Lord, and I've said this from the pulpit, he's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. And Balaam symbolizes someone who wants to claim the lordship of Yahweh with one hand, but to deny him in the way that he lives out his life. And this results in his death later on. When we get to the end of the book of Numbers, the Israelites, though they've fallen into sin because of his manipulation and his plotting and planning um, and sending the Midianite women into the camp to seduce the Israelite men, even though that's happened, he suffers a terrible fate in that the Israelites go up against the king of Moab, Balak, and against the Midianites. And in that battle, the Israelites win and Balaam is slain. So in summary, the book of Numbers is really about God's establishing of his people and how he deals with external threats and internal threats. It shows us that he will not tolerate those who attack his children, but it also shows us that he will not tolerate his children's disobedience. Uh, we see this most clearly when Moses loses his temper in a moment of frustration, and he hits the stone twice that he was supposed to merely speak to, to draw water out of. And in doing that, he, he ruined the symbolism that was attached to it. Um, as we find out later on in the New Testament, in the book of 1 Corinthians, that that rock that followed them around was Christ, and Christ obviously was only to be struck once. And the first time that the rock was giving them water, Moses was to strike it. This time he was only to speak to it. And so Christ's death one time was all we needed, and that symbolism of the rock when he hits it twice, it, it mars the symbolism. Uh, the symbols are important. But even Moses was not exempt from upholding God's holy standard. When he violates God's holy standard and when he disobeys God, God deals with him just like he does the other Israelites. Just as the first generation does not get to go into the promised land, Moses and Aaron are not going to get to go into the promised land now. And so there's no partiality here. God is treating them with the same standard that he treats everyone else. Uh, and that's something for us to remember that we're no exception. We need to uphold God's holy standard, and we need to come to him as humble children who are deeply in need of God's deliverance and his protection, and we should be willing to stand upon his moral and ethical principles and codes um, to, the, to our greatest extent and seek forgiveness in any time that we fail. Because if we do not live up to the standard and we fall into sin, God will use various means to correct us, even if it's a talking donkey. And uh, that's a, a kind of a funny story in and of itself. And there are some questions I have for God one day, like, was Balaam not shocked when the donkey started talking to him? Because he seems to answer the donkey casually. Um, but nonetheless, maybe that's just details that are left out because they're not important. Um, maybe Balaam fainted first, and when he woke up, he came to his senses and then started talking to the donkey. I don't know. But God will use whatever it takes to bring us back to him and to keep us, his children, righteous and obedient uh, to his will. 
So we'll conclude with that note today, and we'll see you next time on the Bible Brush Podcast.